Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Professor Christian Axbo Nielsen about his most recent book, Yugoslavia and Political Assassinations, The History and Legacy of Tito's Campaign Against the Emigres, which was published by I.B. Taurus in 2020. Welcome, Christian. Thank you very much. So just a little background information on Dr. Nielsen. He is an associate professor of history and human security at Aarhus University in Denmark. In 1997, he received a master's in international affairs at Columbia University, where he also received, in 2002, his PhD in Eastern European history. Alongside his scholarship and teaching, Christian has worked as an analyst at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and at the International Criminal Court. He has also appeared as an expert witness in international and domestic criminal and civil cases, and has worked as a consultant for the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, for the Ministry of Justice in Canada, and for the Federal Prosecutor in Germany. In 2014, he published, with University of Toronto Press, Making Yugoslavs, Identity in King Alexander's Yugoslavia. So, Christian, I'd like to begin with a broad question. Namely, how did you come to write this book? As is the case with uh, a number of my scholarly projects, I came to this topic uh, in part because of my own interests, uh, first and foremost, since my days as a doctoral student uh, and working on interwar Yugoslavia, I had been interested in the security services uh, in the various iterations of Yugoslavia in the 20th century. Uh, and that's something that I had worked uh, with as well, uh, with policing and research into the police and security services uh, during my stint in The Hague with the tribunal. But um, I had been planning uh, basically a, a general history of the police, uh, both the regular police and the state security service in socialist Yugoslavia, for some time and had started doing research on it. And then I was approached by the authorities in Germany who told me that they were looking into uh, a murder case from the 1980s uh, and would like to have my assistance. And so it came to be that I produced a research report for the court in Munich uh, in a criminal case that lasted from 2014 to 2016. And, um, when I was done with that case, I felt that it was kind of a shame to only have the expert report, especially since it was a report that I had written in German and which was probably not going to be widely accessible. And I discussed with several colleagues uh, the possibility of essentially converting the book into a larger look at the topic of Yugoslavian, uh, Yugoslavian political assassinations. And, well, that's the book that we have in front of us now. 
Well, I'm thankful that you decided to do so because it's, it's such a fascinating book. And on that, I was hoping you could tell us about your sources. What are some of the challenges of working with these sources you've selected? And obviously, in the process of discussing that, identify where you've drawn your sources from. And then maybe you could also comment on the sources you were unable to access. Sure. Well, the vast majority of the sources that I use are, in fact, sources stemming from the uh, Yugoslav State Security Service and, more broadly, the uh, Yugoslav Ministry or Secretariat, as it was at some points in history called, of internal affairs, uh, which controlled both public policing and uh, state security issues. Uh, In addition to that, I also draw on a wide array of other Yugoslav uh, official state sources. Uh, I have material from the Yugoslav uh, federal presidency, uh, from republican presidencies, uh, for for example, from the Socialist Republic of Croatia and the Socialist Republic of Slovenia, uh, as well as uh, select documents from uh, the uh, military, from the Yugoslav People's Army, their security organs, Um, And, of course, a lot of legislation, that is, a lot of laws and regulations that pertain to the work of uh, the security services in Yugoslavia. I um, was able to gather a very large number of these sources, particularly in the early going back in 2012, when I really started digging into this uh, in the archive of the Republic of Slovenia, um, as you know, and as we'll discuss in some detail later, I think um, Yugoslavia was, of course, a federal state, which means that there are quite a number, uh, seven, in fact, successor states to Yugoslavia, which means from the point of a historian or archival researcher that you're dealing with at least seven different archival laws and policies towards disclosing documents, which, of course, uh, at one point, in the not-too-recent past, were considered uh, among the most uh, confidential documents that the state ever produced. And I was told uh, back in 2012 by archivists in several republics, uh, several former Yugoslav republics, that Slovenia was uh, the place to go. Slovenia was the place that had the most open uh, approach towards allowing access to to, uh, sources pertaining to the Yugoslav State Security Service. And when I went there in the summer of 2012, I certainly wasn't disappointed. It was a, an enormous array of information that uh, I found there. Later, uh, several years later, around 2015 or 16, uh, the situation improved considerably in Croatia as well. I also had some luck uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, paradoxically, uh, I, uh, because of very restrictive Um, policies towards certain categories of sources and some less friendly archival regimes, Um, I didn't end up drawing on archives in Belgrade that much, uh, the federal archives or or the Serbian archives. I use those a lot for my book uh, on King Alexander's dictatorship, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, But in this particular case, it became quite clear that while there was uh, some material related to the Yugoslav State Security Service that was accessible and quite interesting and relevant in the Yugoslav archive, uh, Archiv Yugoslavia, uh, the federal, uh, if you will, archive uh, in Belgrade, uh, that other archives, particularly the military history archive and the archive of Serbia, uh, had much more uh, restrictive 
um, approaches, like I said, uh, to uh, this particular issue. So, um, in in essence, uh, the the benefit of the of the Yugoslav federal state is um, uh, a lot of stuff was sent out to these six different republics: uh, Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, Macedonia, Montenegro, and Serbia. Um, and if you're lucky, uh, as I was, uh, you'll find out that you don't need to go to all of these places because uh, even if you can't get a document that pertains to Croatia in Croatia, uh, again, if you're lucky, a copy of that document or at least some mention of that document will be uh, available in Slovenia, for example. So it's kind of a policy that I have of going towards the point of least resistance. And I think that's served me quite well so far. Yeah, you were really fortunate in that respect because I think of the case of Romania or other former Eastern Bloc countries where you wouldn't have alternative sites for uh, accessing such documents. Okay, so on the topic of sources, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about the challenges of working with these documents and also note what documents you were unable to access. Sure. Uh, well, you know, I would just mention also, I mean, you, um, I completely agree with you about the case of Romania. Uh, another example where you can do what I'm doing just for a different uh, area is, of course, the former Soviet Union, where I know a number of my colleagues who work on the Soviet security services have also been going to former Soviet republics that have, let's say, a lot more uh, lenient attitudes towards allowing access than, say, Russia uh, does. In any case, um, uh, there are obvious problems with relying so heavily on the sources of the state security service. Clearly, um, I realize that there's an extreme need to proceed with uh, heightened caution and a lot of skepticism when uh, I am reading the sources of the Yugoslav State Security Service. I am, in terms of this research project, in terms of this book, particularly interested in what the Yugoslav State Security Service uh, had to say, uh, wrote about, documented uh, how they acted towards uh, various emigres who had left the territory of socialist Yugoslavia. I am conscious, intensely so, of the fact that there was a very antagonistic relationship between the Yugoslav socialist state on the one hand and those emigres on the other hand, uh, and it is therefore uh, incumbent upon me to not take the statements of uh, the Yugoslav State Security Service about those emigres and their uh, hostile or potentially hostile intentions uh, towards Yugoslavia at face value. Um, so I, I really try to uh, be very, very careful, um, try to compare uh, the uh, sources that I have with uh, what we know from uh, other sources, including emigre sources, about uh, those emigre's activities, compare them to uh, Western intelligence reports, uh, or of course just uh, news media reports uh, about what actually happened. But again, I'm as I was also in The Hague and also in the court in Munich, I'm in essence also in a way interested in painting a portrait for the reader of the kind of worldview of the Yugoslav State Security Service, what it was uh, like to work for that state security service, uh, how they viewed the activities of the emigres. And I'm also hoping to transmit 
uh, or convey, uh, if you will, therefore a bit of the sense of paranoia uh, that um, was, uh, I would say, almost a perennial phenomenon in the Yugoslav State Security Service towards these emigres. Now, one of the things about state security services is that there's a, a whole heck of a lot of them, uh, something that we're also familiar with in, in our time. If we look at, for example, the Department of Homeland Security in the United States and the myriad agencies which constitute the uh, state security apparatus in, in the United States. Similarly, in socialist Yugoslavia, there were many different services at many different levels. And one of the services uh, whose archives are uh, virtually inaccessible to me um, and to most other researchers uh, is the uh, old uh, Yugoslav military security service, or as it was called, the administration of security in the Yugoslav People's Army. Um, and particularly within the administration of security, there was something known as the counterintelligence service, Kontraobavishtaina uh, Služba, known in, in in the former Yugoslavia by its acronym KOS, K-O-S. And uh, KOS was next to the Yugoslav State Security Service, and to this day in kind of the urban legends and in the popular imagination, uh, the most powerful uh, of the Yugoslav state security services. Uh, it was a military security service. And as I said, unfortunately, the military archives are essentially, uh, for all intents and purposes, inaccessible, uh, not just to a foreigner like me, but also to my colleagues in Serbia. Um, and uh, yet we know with certainty because of the testimony in M Munich and elsewhere of employees, veterans of the uh, military's counterintelligence service. We know that that military intelligence uh, or counterintelligence service was all also involved to a considerable extent in operations outside Yugoslavia. Um, whether they actually participated in the assassinations, uh, to what extent they were involved in planning them, um, is uh, something that I can only speculate upon, but I can certainly say that they did play a role. And so it is my hope um, that uh, if not within my lifetime, that at least future generations of researchers will also be able to uh, get that portion of the picture so that we can have a an even better understanding than the one I am able to provide in this book. Yeah, won't be holding my breath for that one, right? <laughs> exactly. It's it's um, it's very unfortunate, and there is, as I've said in several interviews elsewhere, including in the former Yugoslavia, I think it's 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 actually inexcusable, um, and it, it's silly because we are talking about pr protecting the secrets of the state secrets of a state that no longer exists. Yeah, it really is uh, ridiculous and obviously unfortunate for scholars like you, but other scholars who are hoping to access this material. And obviously then for the sake of filling in those gaps and rounding out the historical narrative. So I hope we can access these documents within a decade, certainly that we don't have to wait three decades to access them. Um, okay, so I'd like to dive into a discussion of the chapters now. So in chapter one, you examine the purpose and charge of the Yugoslav State Security Service, the UDBA, 
noting how it functioned within the federative structure of socialist Yugoslavia. Could you elaborate on this? Sure. At the very basic level, uh, it's perhaps useful to just sketch again the, the structure of the Yugoslav state. We have a socialist uh, federative republic consisting of six republics, uh, again, uh, Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Serbia, Montenegro, and Macedonia. Uh, and within Serbia, there were also two autonomous provinces, Vojvodina in the north and Kosovo in the south. Now, um, the uh, administrative structure of Yugoslavia mirrored uh, that federal structure uh, that I just mentioned. And that meant that in addition to a federal secretariat or ministry for internal affairs uh, at the top, there were also uh, six Republican secretariats uh, or ministries uh, of internal affairs in those six republics and uh, also uh, some uh, what they called autonomous secretariats uh, for uh, internal affairs in Kosovo and Vojvodina. Roughly speaking, uh, as you know, the Yugoslav state existed from 1945 until 1991. Um, during the period from 1945 to uh, around uh, 1966, this federal structure was more something that existed on paper uh, when we were uh, discussing policing and particularly state security uh, than it did uh, in practice. And what I mean by that is that uh, Yugoslavia was, in practice, for the first couple of decades of its existence, a highly centralized state in which essentially, uh, especially with respect to policing and state security, uh, everything of importance was decided in Belgrade and the uh, ministries at the Republican and uh, provincial levels were there more as conveyor belts uh, for those orders uh, rather than as any kind of autonomous uh, decision-making units. A after 1966, and, and just briefly, what changes in 1966 is the purge of Aleksandr Rankovic, who was the uh, Serb, uh, very close confidant of Tito for many years, believed to probably be the potential successor to Tito, Rankovic was purged in the summer of 1966 um, for some allegations that, among other things, involved um, uh, allegations of uh, illegally uh, wiretapping uh, Tito and some of his associates. And after that purge, uh, a, an incipient decentralization of the Yugoslav state, which had already started... Um, a couple of years earlier in which Rankovic had uh, opposed, uh, now gained momentum. And by the time we get to 1974, which is the uh, Yugoslav constitution, the, the newest Yugoslav, and in fact, the last Yugoslav constitution, one that was famously or infamously, depending on how you look on it, uh, the longest constitution in the world at the time, uh, that constitution really in, in earnest, gave, put wind in the sails of, of decentralization. And this meant that from 1974 until the end of Yugoslavia's existence, the Croatian State Security Service in Zagreb or the Slovenian State Security Service in Ljubljana had a lot more autonomy in terms of their operations 
they still had to coordinate with Belgrade, and they most certainly had to coordinate with respect to any operations that crossed Republican borders or that involved, as is the case in, in the ambit of my book, operations outside of Yugoslavia. But within those uh, parameters, uh, the state security service uh, within Croatia, for example, uh, had a lot more leeway in terms of structuring its work and deciding uh, whom they wanted to focus their operations on and how they wanted to go about those operations. So I think it's it's worth keeping in mind that, um, I mean, and anyone who has worked in the United Nations or any other large university bureaucracy like both you and I have, uh, we know uh, how much infighting there is, how uh, that, that these bureaucracies are not a monolith. Uh, and I think that's important to keep in mind as well, uh, especially because there is such a... Uh, pervasive uh, public image of these uh, state security services in post-communist states as somehow having been, um, uh, again, monoliths uh, that acted as as automatons, and and a lot of nuance tends to go lost in that. So I, I'm, I hope by explaining and presenting the federal structure of Yugoslavia uh, that that comes out, and we can see at least some tensions and disagreements also start to emerge there. Excellent. Well, I have a follow-up question. I was wondering if you could put the UDBA in the context of the Cold War more generally. So uh, obviously Yugoslavia is a non-aligned country. And so uh, how is that different then from the security agencies that we see uh, in Soviet bloc states? Well, the UDBA, which is, uh, again, the UDBA is just a, a... the common uh, name for the Yugoslav State Security Service, and it's the name that is still used in in popular speech today in in, uh, the Balkans, or or certainly in the former Yugoslavia. Um, With respect to the UDPA, similarities with the state security services in other parts of Eastern Europe uh, are a lot greater than the differences. So, uh, one of the things that we always have to keep in mind with Yugoslavia is that uh, while it broke with the Soviet bloc in the summer of 1948, the famous uh, Tito-Stalin split, the Yugoslav State Security Service and the Yugoslav Party State very much remained intact until 1990, 1991. And that means that For example, in the Constitution from 1974, which I just mentioned, uh, that Constitution very clearly makes it, uh, um, emphasizes that the role of the Yugoslav State Security Service uh, is in fact not just to protect the security of the state, which is something that we of course have in, in just about any modern state, but specifically to protect the security of the party state. So the Yugoslav State Security Service is not just guarding the internal and external security uh, of the Yugoslav state, uh, it's also protecting the Yugoslav Communist Party, or as it was known after the early 1950s, the League of Communists of Yugoslavia. And so in that sense, I really think that it has much more in common with the the KGB or the Securitate or the Sigurimi, uh, then, uh, then, then it has differences. At the same p- point in time, I think we need to also keep in mind that there is nothing inherently criminal 
uh, or evil in having a state security service. And I think this is one place where I, I kind of, uh, if I can express it colloquially, I kind of wish people would calm down a little bit in not just the former Yugoslavia, but other parts of uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, because I think that a lot of people, uh, when they look at what the UDPA or the Securitate or other state security services were doing, their point of departure is that these were inherently evil entities. And let us let there be no doubt there were uh, widespread and systematic, massive human rights violations on the part of these uh, security services in, in virtually all decades of these countries' existence. At the same time, and this is, is especially relevant when I'm talking about, for example, certain groups, uh, emigrate groups, uh, Croat or others in West Germany or uh, other parts of the world uh, who were plotting uh, armed attacks against Yugoslav targets, either embassies, for example, abroad or consulates, uh, or uh, let's say hydroelectric dams or companies or other facilities or institutions in Yugoslavia, I think we just need to realize and remember that these kinds of state security services exist for a reason, uh, and that whether we're talking about Denmark in 2021 or we're talking about Yugoslavia in 1972, if an armed group of uh, young men uh, infiltrate onto your territory and start attacking, for example, police stations, uh, then uh, I think regardless of communist ideology, uh, it's quite reasonable to expect that the state will try to defend itself. Now, how it does that, which methods it does, and what role ideology plays, whether, for example, the perpetrators are afforded any kind of due process uh, and any rights uh, when they are confronted by that state, that is, of course, an entirely different matter. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point to make, that these agencies in the former Eastern Bloc, but also obviously in Yugoslavia, are very much framed by this Cold War paradigm and through this lens of anti-communism, by which then agencies, similar agencies and liberal democracies are excused, their actions are kind of excused, if you look at it in the context of the Cold War, and even thereafter. Right. And I think I, I, I would just also mention that, as, as you know from the book, there's a um, several references to the cooperation at the height of the Cold War between Yugoslav, uh, the Yugoslav State Security Service, that is the UDPA on the one hand, and Western intelligence agencies on the other hand. So despite the fact that Yugoslavia um, uh, was a communist state, uh, there are m many instances that I found where uh, uh, NATO intelligence services uh, from various NATO member countries share intelligence with the UDPA regarding uh, potential threats to Yugoslav security. Now, this was in part, you mentioned the non-aligned movement, in part it's because um, Yugoslavia was seen to play a, a, a positive role and, you know, Yugoslavia was kind of a darling of the West, certainly at, at some points in time, uh, because it had strayed from the East Bloc. Um, but it was also, again, a recognition, um, uh, even, uh, uh, interestingly enough, on the part of some very conservative politicians in the West, that we may be anti-communists and Yugoslav, uh, Yugoslavia may be a communist regime, uh, but we are just not going to accept uh, a bunch of immigrants uh, sitting in, for example, Australia 
uh, and uh, planning certain operations uh, which would reflect negatively on Australia uh, if they succeed uh, in attacking a, a state like Yugoslavia. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, as much as Western countries want to see socialist states fail and ultimately collapse, they certainly don't want to be associated with or be seen as supporting these hostile emigres that are plotting to overthrow the government in their native countries. So it obviously makes sense that security services in Western countries would, at least in certain instances, collaborate with the UDBA or other security services in Eastern Europe. Okay, so I would like to ask a follow-up question related to UDBA practices and terminology, namely, what was associated with special surveillance? Well, there's a lot of uh, euphemisms that we run into in uh, these documents. And one of the interesting things that I think uh, makes it a kind of fun puzzle to solve for a historian is that we see that sometimes uh, the uh, curtain slips, as it were, and some of the things that are referred to as uh, special surveillance or special uh, operations or special measures to be taken against a certain target where you can guess and, you know, think that you know what it refers to. Well, sometimes if you're lucky enough in another part of that person's dossier or in a different file that you end up finding months or years later elsewhere, um, again, the curtain is lifted because there you suddenly see the very same target, the very same operation uh, expressed in, in very clear terms. And so um, there were different levels of surveillance that uh, someone could be put under uh, if they were perceived to be an enemy of the Yugoslav state. And this, by the way, is relevant both for domestic uh, or internal enemies of the state, as well as the external enemies, such as the emigres that uh, I focus on in this book. And once you get into what they call operational processing, uh, which is where they really open a dossier uh, that has your name on it, and they uh, start assigning agents and informants to work on you to try to basically cover all of your steps to gather as much information as possible. If it at that point becomes uh, apparent that you are essentially still uh, planning something that is going to be very negative uh, and potentially uh, dangerous uh, to Yugoslav interests, then they would potentially initiate various kinds of what are called special surveillance. And this could be, for example, uh, by having, again, a combination of informants that have been recruited and actual operatives of the Yugoslav State Security Service. It could be in Vienna, it could be in Paris, Stockholm, anywhere else, uh, that are essentially doing the classic things that we know from uh, spy operations. So this can be everything from uh, video or photo uh, surveillance. It can be people following you, uh, de detailing and tracking your movements. Uh, there can be things such as um, people who are uh, agents uh, provocateurs, who are uh, introduced uh, in an effort to obtain more intelligence about you. And ultimately, uh, special surveillance can also lead to uh, operations that actually involve the abduction of the target or, in extreme cases, uh, the uh, assassination, uh, as of course happens on several occasions. And I think this is where I, I just, so that I don't forget to say it later, as much as this is a book about the assassinations of 
uh, emigres or attempted assassinations of emigres. Uh, and that's, of course, a very, uh, in a way, attention-grabbing subject and a very, quote-unquote, attractive subject. Uh, I also want to emphasize that uh, it's very apparent from the sources that for a variety of reasons that we can perhaps get into, uh, the Yugoslav State Security Service, the UDPA, and of course uh, the leaders of the Yugoslav state, including Tito, uh, in most cases actually wanted to avoid assassinations. And so we should look at assassinations carried out by the UDPA as kind of uh, an instrument of last resort when they couldn't get the hostile activity of the target persons to cease in, in, in a, any other manner. Great. Uh, thank you for underscoring that, uh, because I think it's important to keep in mind as we proceed through the book. So on that, let's move to chapter two. Um, in this chapter, you examine how the Yugoslav state defined enemy emigres, uh, which was clearly in political terms, but also uh, often in ethno-national terms. So can you first uh, explain what you mean by political emigration and hostile emigration, placing this within the context of emigration more generally, and then perhaps say something about the Gastarbeiter? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, first, let me just say, so again, that I don't forget to mention it later, that I really hope that the readers of my book will also have a look at uh, my colleague Mate Nikola Tokic's book uh, that came out uh, about a year before my own. Uh, Mate Nikola Tokic uh, really goes into detail on the emigre side of things, uh, particularly with respect to West Germany uh, and Australia. And I think our two books are very much worth reading uh, together uh, because they complement each other and uh, present that picture. And so Mate is looking at these uh, political refugees and other kinds of emigres, the, how, also how it evolves over the generations, but roughly speaking, to go back to the beginning of socialist Yugoslavia, as we know, socialist Yugoslavia rose out of the ashes of the completely catastrophic and fratricidal uh, Second World War in Yugoslavia's case. And uh, specifically with respect to Croatia, uh, there was this uh, so-called independent uh, state of Croatia, a, a fascist puppet state aligned with uh, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy that collapsed in the spring of 1945. And the early political emigration uh, defined as people who are emigrating for political purposes, that is their primary motivation, uh, they leave already there in the spring of 1945, including, of course, the notorious head of this uh, Ustasha state, uh, Ante Pavlic, who eventually makes his way to Argentina. And um, a lot of people join him. A lot of people also don't go as far as South America or Australia, but stay in, for example, Austria or go to Spain, uh, go to France, uh, Belgium, uh, German, West Germany in particular are, are popular destinations. And so from the very, very beginning, because clearly the Yugoslav state, could they have had their own way, uh, and the Yugoslav Communist Party would have wanted to incarcerate uh, prosecute and probably in at least in some cases, uh, particularly in the early days, and for a particularly high officials such as Pavlic, execute uh, these uh, quislings. Uh, from the very get go, the Yugoslav state is presented with the problem that these people are not within the reach of the Yugoslav party state. Uh, the uh, state security service can't apprehend them. Uh, 
uh, they have to get some kind of agent network and informants network. They have to set that up uh, from the very ground up uh, in the late 1940s. And um, uh, then later, uh, once we get into the 1950s, uh, and Yugoslavia is already, uh, after about 1953, starting its first tepid steps of liberalization, we then have continued political immigration. I refer in the book to several, particular, in particular, young men who uh, have especially uh, Croat nationalist sympathies. Uh, they get into trouble because of Croatian nationalism uh, in school, in, uh, particularly in secondary school in various places in Croatia. Uh, some of them are imprisoned. Uh, and some of them, after they get out of prison or in an effort to avoid prison, uh, some of these young men then actually end up emigrating from Yugoslavia in the early 1950s and uh, mid-1950s uh, and making their way to places like Australia, where they then connect uh, and network with the, these previously present uh, Yugoslav political emigres. Again, my focus because they're the largest and most, in a way, most hostile group, are the Croats in in this book. Uh, But there are, of course, Slovenes, Serbs, Bosnian Muslims, ethnic Albanians, and others. Now, you mentioned the Gastarbeiter, the so-called guest workers. um, And while it was in the early period of Yugoslavia illegal to leave uh, without permission, Uh, Once we get into the late 1950s and definitely into the 60s and very much so in the 70s and 80s, uh, Yugoslavia signs a number of bilateral agreements with, in particular, West Germany, but also other uh, West European countries, uh, essentially facilitating the mass uh, movement of uh, hundreds of thousands of guest workers. Uh, This has been the subject of some very exciting recent uh, research and, and newer books in, in Yugoslav historiography. And these guest workers are, of course, emigrating primarily uh, f- uh, for uh, economic reasons. So they're not political immigrants. Um, but these uh, guest workers are also of concern to the Yugoslav authorities because, and this should be rather obvious, what happens if a young man from, say, Bosnia and Herzegovina uh, goes to uh, Cologne, Germany, or Liège in Belgium, or uh, Paris in the early 1970s for economic reasons? And once he's there, maybe a bit homesick, wants to speak his mother tongue, uh, wants to enjoy some of the good cooking from the old country, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, then uh, he, and again, it was overwhelmingly male in the beginning, uh, then he would go to a uh, Yugoslav or Croatian or other cultural club. And the Yugoslav State Security Service knew very well that these places were uh, haunted by, or in many cases run by, this older generation of political emigres, many of whom had extremely nationalist and even fascist inclinations, and so again, from the Yugoslav State, State Security Service's point of view, the point is, how do we inoculate our good socialist Yugoslav citizens who go out as guest workers against this fascist nationalist hostility towards Yugoslavia? And if we can't inoculate them, how do we put in place some kind of countermeasures 
so that we don't risk that these people essentially become, well, now we would use, you know, post 9-11, et cetera, we would use the term radicalized. How do we prevent the radicalization of these young people um, so that they don't uh, basically fall into cahoots with these uh, older hostile political emigres? Yeah, so the way the Yugoslav state dealt with these emigres was a complex, it was a multifaceted effort that, as you note, also included preventative measures to ensure that these economic emigres didn't become hostile at some point. So on that, let's move on to chapter three, which explores the Udba's methods against emigre communities. What were some of these operations called? And could you tell us about the operation against Bata Todorovic? Um, and in addition, after that, uh, could you perhaps tell us uh, what the role of agents versus informants was, and particularly uh, discuss how the latter were recruited? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's start with the operations. Um, there were quite a lot of operations, probably hundreds, um, uh, over the course of the uh, life of the Yugoslav State Security Service. I'm, of course, interested in those operations that uh, occurred outside of the territory of Yugoslavia. And as you noted, there are uh, many different names. Uh, Some of them come from Greek or Roman mythology. Some of them uh, appear to be loosely connected uh, to uh, various geographical locations. Uh, Some of them have uh, flippant or even uh, comical names. Uh, But we definitely see that uh, there are a wide array of operations that are targeting uh, the emigres. Some of them last for very short periods of time. In some cases, these operations uh, can go on uh, for years at a time, even uh, for um, uh, over a decade in in certain isolated uh, cases. And again, I think the important thing to realize here is that there was a division of labor. We mentioned earlier the federal structure uh, of uh, the UDPA and of the Yugoslav state. And so uh, one of the things that was, one could call it a gentleman's agreement, that I haven't been able to find documented, codified uh, on paper, uh, but which was certainly there in practice, is that there was an understanding, loosely speaking, that, for example, Croat immigrants would be primarily handled by the Croatian State Security Service and the Bosnian State Security Service, given that Bosnia had uh, and still has today uh, a very large uh, ethnic Croat population, whereas Serb immigrants, for example, would be primarily handled by the uh, Serbian State Security Service, etc. There was also a geographical dimension, however, Uh, The reality of uh, the geography of Yugoslavia is such that uh, Slovenia, being the most northwesterly republic of uh, Yugoslavia, uh, was most proximate to both Austria and Italy, uh, and in a way also to West Germany. And so many operations uh, that took place in um, Austria and West Germany and northern Italy Uh, even if they did not involve Slovene targets, would be run in conjunction for logistical and other operational reasons, would be run in conjunction uh, with the uh, Yugoslav, uh, uh, with with the Slovenian State Security Service. 
whenever the Slovenian State Security Service, for example, would have to cooperate with the Bosnian State Security Service or the Croatian State Security Service would cooperate with the Serbian State Security Service, whenever that happened, the uh, Federal State Security Service had to be uh, included. And every single step that any state security service, any Republican state security service uh, took with respect to uh, any operation, not just getting the operation uh, approved, but every uh, subsequent step of the operation until it was closed outside the borders, if it was outside the borders of Yugoslavia, then the federal state security service had to check off on this uh, because, uh, and again, this this seems rather logical, the um, uh, the risks uh, from a diplomatic perspective, uh, international political perspective, um, the risks if something went wrong while the Yugoslav State Security Service was running an operation in Rome, Vienna, or Berlin uh, were much more considerable than if the Yugoslav State Security Service were running some kind of operation uh, within, say, Slovenia or Croatia and something went wrong. Uh, the diplomatic fallout could be uh, considerable, and therefore uh, they wanted to make very clear in Belgrade um, within the Yugoslav presidency, uh, both while Tito was alive and after 1980, after he died, uh, they wanted to make sure that there was nothing that was, uh, you know, no no maverick or solo operations uh, should be run. Now, you mentioned and asked me to explain the uh, case of... Uh, Bata Todorovic, again, while the book focuses overwhelmingly on the Croat immigrants, there is this interesting case of the Serb, uh, Slobodan Bata Todorovic, uh, who uh, basically emigrated legally. He, so he's one of these economic emigrants, not a political one. He leaves uh, Yugoslavia legally in the mid-1960s, and he makes his way to uh, Munich in West Germany, uh, where he's operating uh, as a businessman, um, and for a long time there's no problem with him. However, because he is perceived by the Yugoslav State Security Service to be linked to Alexander Rankovic, who had been purged in 1966, and who, until his death in 1983, was under constant political surveillance because they always feared that Rankovic would try to make some kind of comeback as the strongman of Yugoslavia. Um, again, there were some suspicions um, in, in the Yugoslav State Security Service that Todorovic was somehow, in a way, assisting Rankovic or people around him, and um, that he was also conducting certain kinds of economic activities which could be potentially destabilizing to the interests of Yugoslavia. And so a decision is made um, that, again, involves several republics, um, Slovenia because of its geographic proximity, Serbia because he's a Serb from Serbia, and Croatia uh, for logistical reasons. All of these uh, republican security services, together with the um, uh, Yugoslav State Security Service, uh, essentially, start to focus on Todorovic, and we have a a uh, very a, a number of uh, various names: uh, Operation uh, X, Operation XY, Operation Adriatic, uh, Operation Vrk, which means peak. So there's various uh, terms that are used for this uh, operation. 
based uh, or targeting Todorovich. And um, by the early 1970s, uh, they essentially start to try to figure out how can we um, bring Todorovich back into Yugoslavia. Um, and uh, what eventually happens is that in 1975, after using these special surveillance mechanisms, which we discussed uh, briefly earlier, uh, the Yugoslav uh, State Security Service finally, in February 1975, outright kidnaps uh, Todorovic from Munich. Uh, and it's fascinating to see uh, how this is uh, detailed uh, very meticulously uh, in, the, in the Slovenian archives, where most of the material is available. And I'm thankful, I want to just mention briefly, to uh, the publicist uh, Igor Omerza, uh, a Slovenian uh, researcher and publicist who has written a lot about these topics. Um, uh, he was the one who, who first located these documents and, and kind of reconstructed this. And what we see is that in February 1975, this hapless Todorovic suddenly finds himself uh, he waking up in an apartment building in the middle of uh, Slovenia um, which, which the Urpa has set up as an improvised prison. And they keep him there for a number of months, actually almost half a year, um, or about half a year. Uh, and they're basically pumping him for information, interrogating him. And then they do something which is really interesting. They essentially transfer him to a different city in Slovenia, uh, to the coast. And then the Udba. Uh, anonymously tips off the Yugoslav police and says, hey, this, this guy Todorovic, who's wanted for economic crimes against Yugoslavia, guess what? Um, he's been sighted in a hotel on the coast of Slovenia, and lo and behold, the regular police shows up there, they arrest him, and then this is what's called a legalization of an, what, what was in base uh, an, Ill an illegal kidnapping operation. They now basically legalize his presence um, as a fugitive in Yugoslavia, they put him on trial and he's uh, convicted, uh, sentenced to many years in prison. And uh, again, this very hapless Todorovic uh, dies a few years later in 1984, uh, at least in part uh, because of uh, health issues that he incurred uh, during this uh, very in, in unfortunate odyssey that the, the Udba put him on. Um, I think the last part of your question, uh, Jill, was the the informants uh, versus the official employees. Um, and here I would just briefly say that, of course, the Yugoslav State Security Service, like the Stasi or the Securitate, had career employees. Um, and I won't really go into detail on them, but the more interesting category of which there were many different kinds were uh, informants uh, who could be uh, unwitting informants. Some of them um, didn't even realize that they were providing the UDPA with information. Uh, but the more interesting kind of informants uh, were the um, uh, ones who actually entered into uh, a formal relationship uh, with the with the UDPA, uh, where they were assigned. Um, and again, there's a wide and often slightly hilarious array of of, of code names. Everything from Gremlin to Cyclops to Terminator to musician, composer, professor, etc., 
of, of, of pseudonyms that they were assigned. But for a very a, a variety of reasons, everything ranging from uh, patriotism um, uh, and uh, diehard allegiance to the Yugoslav Communist Party state to, of course, uh, what the Soviets would call kompromat, um, uh, various kinds of material uh, that could be sexual, economic, or uh, otherwise in nature, uh, which forced certain people to enter into, uh, under coercion, uh, to enter into cooperation with the Yugoslav State Security Service. But there were hundreds and thousands of these people. um, And importantly, in the Yugoslav case, these informants were widely recruited also in all of the areas of the world in which Yugoslav emigres or guest workers were located. Um, and that means if it was a, it could be a, a Yugoslav cultural club in Malmer, it could be a Croatian folklore club in uh, Kitchener, Ontario, uh, it could be a, a um, Croatian uh, or Slovenian chess club in Melbourne, Australia, uh, or any of uh, uh, thousands of other possibilities. It could be a, a, a Yugoslav factory worker in Volvo in Gothenburg, Sweden. In all of these places, the Yugoslav State Security Service tried to have their agents and informants um, placed uh, in various guises so that they would be able to collect as much information as possible about any potential threats to Yugoslav security. Yeah, the code names are entertaining, I have to say. Um, I enjoyed them. Okay, so let's move on to Chapter 4, which explores the Specialni Rat the special war that Tito claimed was being waged against Yugoslavia. Can you elaborate on this? Well, Tito was, of course, a communist. And uh, even though he had split with the uh, East Bloc, he very much still believed, and it was part of Yugoslav uh, military doctrine, that Yugoslavia could uh, well be the target of military action by uh, NATO, uh, and that is something that he believed uh, right up until he died in 1980, just as he equally believed that uh, the Soviets and their allies in the East Bloc might belatedly seek uh, vengeance for the Tito-Stalin split in 1948, and therefore Yugoslav uh, military doctrine p- required that Yugoslavia had to be p- potentially prepared for not just attack, but infiltration and um, uh, undermining uh, uh, political or military operations, espionage operations of various kinds from both the East and the West. Now, with respect to these political immigrants, uh, the ones I'm focused on in the book are, of course, the ones who went to the West. Uh, and again, uh, particularly Croats in uh, Western Europe, South America, Australia, and North America. And uh, from the very early days, um, uh, that is to say, from the late 1940s uh, and into the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, the Yugoslavs uh, believed, and certainly many in the Udba believed, that NATO was uh, waging a kind of low-intensity psychological war or, or using various uh, means of psychological warfare to essentially not only weaken the Yugoslav state, but also probe, as it were, uh, Yugoslavia's soft spots and see how Yugoslavia could be undermined 
uh, in the case that NATO would at some point want to go into an actual war with Yugoslavia. And seen from this point of view, part of the special war, Special Nirat, uh, which uh, you mentioned, uh, was uh, the suspicion among the uh, Yugoslav military and civilian uh, state security service officials um, that Yugoslav emigres uh, would be recruited by NATO uh, forces to essentially act as a kind of vanguard for a possible future attack. This uh, thought was particularly acute in the late 1940s and 1950s, um, but didn't uh, ever entirely recede. And we know, in fact, uh, that much is clear from the archival material that I've been able to see, that uh, the uh, U.S. military, the West German military, uh, the Belgian military, the U.K. military, uh, many NATO countries uh, in the early period uh, did, for obvious reasons, also maintain contact with these fiercely anti-communist um, uh, elements within the Yugoslav political emigres. Uh, and it does appear, uh, certainly in the early period, that there were some elements of uh, not just political organization, perhaps some bankrolling of these organizations, but also even uh, some limited kind of paramilitary training that was furnished towards some of these groups. Um, uh, and again, from the Yugoslav perspective, uh, this was kind of something that they needed to be preventing. Uh, and certainly in the 1970s, uh, when uh, there was an, uh, uh, an operation in 1972 where uh, about uh, 19 uh, ethnic Croats came in from Austria, hijacked a truck, drove it to Bosnia and Herzegovina in the summer of 1972, and launched what turned out to be a completely uh, catastrophically failed uprising against uh, Yugoslavia, uh, but one which nonetheless took thousands of Yugoslav security personnel uh, and many days and weeks to suppress. This convinced Tito that the uh, Yugoslav State Security Service uh, and the Yugoslav Military Security Service had to adopt a more offensive profile and essentially take the fight, as he put it, uh, go on the offensive, take the fight to the emigres. And this coincided to some degree, with an escalation of operations, including assassinations of Yugoslav emigres outside of Yugoslavia. Yeah, and I was wondering if you could also comment on the role of Western intelligence services. I know there's a particular concern with West Germany by the Yugoslav state. Yes, well, uh, again, the Yugoslav um, uh, state security service, the UDPA, they're, they're always worried about um, the um, intentions of Western uh, security services. In fact, uh, within the structure of the UDPA, uh, there is an entire administration that's devoted to uh, running counterintelligence operations against uh, West German and other uh, NATO intelligence services, and West Germany was a particularly acute area of focus because it had by far the largest number of emigre Yugoslavs, including by far the largest number of emigre Croats. Nonetheless, uh, as I also mentioned earlier, 
there were also liaison meetings and exchanges of intelligence uh, between the West German intelligence agencies, such as the Bundesnachrichtendienst, the BND, and the uh, Yugoslav UDBA, uh, just as there were between Austria's intelligence service and uh, the UDBA, uh, where, for example, the uh, West Germans uh, realize that, for example, uh, explosive materials have been stolen from a building site, a construction site, where Yugoslav guest workers are working. That would be the kind of thing where the West Germans would proactively contact the uh, Yugoslav authorities and say, listen, we have some in- information that that there might be an attack. And so there is this degree of cooperation, even as there is still this intense hostility. And of course, the Yugoslavs never believe everything. They're always skeptical and they always believe that the West Germans, or for that matter, the Australians or the Austrians are not cracking down hard enough. But as as my colleague Mate Nikolatokic shows in his book, a really defining moment, both with respect to Australia and with respect to West Germany, comes when uh, some of these Croat emigres start attacking uh, Yugoslav targets, not just in Yugoslavia, but on West German territory or on Australian territory. Because again, uh, it's one thing if you're the West German intelligence service and you are anti-communist or you're the Australian intelligence service and you're anti-communist. It's one thing if these Croats are out in the woods planning some kind of raid that they're going to carry out in Yugoslavia. It's another uh, matter entirely if they start bombing targets in West Germany or Australia, which of course also creates the very real risk uh, that there will be uh, a danger to citizens of West Germany or Australia. Great. Thank you so much for elaborating on that. Uh, okay, so let's move on to Chapter 5, which is entitled Murder in Munich. And this chapter focuses on the assassination of Stepan Djurekovic. Could you tell us about this operation? Sure. So uh, Stepan Djurekovic was a uh, middle-level manager in a company that still exists today called Ina, which is a, a petroleum uh, or oil company uh, based in Croatia. And it was uh, one of the most important co- companies in uh, not just socialist Croatia, but socialist Yugoslavia. And Djurekovic in the uh, spring of 1982 uh, suddenly doesn't come to work and uh, no one really knows where he is. And after a while, uh, after a couple of weeks, the, the UDBA uh, is able to ascertain that he has uh, fled, uh, Djurekovic has, through Austria to West Germany, and that he is uh, now located in Munich, uh, where his, incidentally, his son, who had wanted to avoid um, obligatory uh, military service, uh, had absconded to earlier. And Munich is one of the premier kind of hotbeds of Croat emigre, uh, or as they would call it in the UDPA, hostile Croat emigre activities. There's a very large number of Croats in Bavaria and in the Munich area, and many of them, again, have links going all the way back to the late 1940s and are uh, intensely hostile towards uh, socialist Yugoslavia and openly advocate the um, secession of Croatia from Yugoslavia. 
So the fact that Jurekovic has uh, surfaced in this milieu is, is of intense concern, uh, but of equally intense concern is the fact that Jurekovic is not just some teenager, some hothead, uh, as were many of the others who had disappeared from Yugoslavia in this manner. Jurekovic is a person who works for INA, a company that, because it works with oil and petroleum, has a lot of uh, very important, very sensitive uh, information pertaining to Yugoslav state security. Uh, he has information, for example, about how, how the size of the strategic oil reserves uh, of uh, Yugoslavia and the Yugoslav People's Army in particular, the location of oil depots, etc., etc. And uh, it becomes apparent that Jurekovic, prior to absconding from Yugoslavia, has for a number of years been uh, passing information to uh, the West German uh, intelligence agency, the BND, which I mentioned a few minutes ago. So um, within uh, weeks of him resurfacing, there are a number of operations uh, that are put in place against Jurekovic, including one called uh, Operatia Pismo, uh, or, or Letter, uh, which is in part designed to not only monitor Jurekovic's contacts, but also, in, se- in essence, defame him. So, of course, like many other uh, Yugoslav, uh, or, or like many other intelligence organizations, uh, one of the things that you can do if you suspect somebody of uh, being a uh, negative actor, you can try to defame him, and that's in part what they try to do. They spread disinformation, uh, even while they're monitoring his activities, and they have many of these informal informants in the uh, Munich area who are on an almost daily basis um, from about uh, April, May 1982 until his demise in July 1983, uh, keeping an eye on him. And the interest is acute because uh, Jurekovic really rises um, in part because of his status and in part because he, in rapid succession, publishes a number of books which he has apparently been writing for years and kind of smuggling out of Yugoslavia on his business trips. In very rapid succession, he publishes about four books that are kind of tawdry, very poorly written, but sensationalist um, and really uh, even vulgar attacks on Tito uh, and the Yugoslav party state. Uh, and so he's he's not only selling state secrets, he's airing their dirty laundry, he's uh, cavorting with Croat nationalists, he seems to be interested in uh, forming or establishing some kind of pirate radio station, which would be located in the Adriatic and which would beam hostile propaganda back into Yugoslavia. So for all of these reasons, um, he very, very quickly uh, becomes a subject of intense focus and interest by the Yugoslav State Security Service. Uh, And of course, their goal is uh, to use in the terminology of the service, they want to pacify him, which means they want his activities to cease. But it is also quite apparent that he's probably not going to just shut up by himself. And that, of course, raises the question, how are we going to tackle this problem? Yeah, I found the story of Jurekovic particularly interesting, his trajectory, and then the fact that here he is in Germany writing all these poorly written anti-Yugoslav books, 
And then, of course, what ultimately happens to him, which I'm not going to say anything about since you only told part of the story and obviously you want to keep our listeners in suspense. Uh, Also, we're running out of time. So let's move on to the concluding chapter, which explores the revenge of the emigres after the collapse of Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. Can you elaborate on the nature of this revenge and also discuss the strange bedfellows that worked in the Ministry of Internal Affairs and the Ministry of Defense in Franjo Tuđman's Croatia? Sure. So um, in the late 1980s, uh, it became apparent uh, primarily, uh, but not only to leading members of the Yugoslav State Security Service, um, including uh, the Croatian Security Service, their branch of the UDPA, that Yugoslavia was really fragmenting. Uh, Tito had died in 1980, um, and without going into the details here, Yugoslavia was uh, stuck in a uh, profound and protracted economic, social, and political crisis. And by the late 1980s, uh, nationalism, uh, not just in Croatia, but also in Serbia and in other republics, was uh, really rearing its head and starting to be positioned and indeed grasped by Uh, a lot of actors as the new ideology that they thought would, uh, for various reasons, uh, uh, solve the issues that the country was facing. And this was, of course, starting to tear the country apart. And it should be stated again very clearly that the URPA uh, was uh, charged with not just defending the Yugoslav party state, but defending what was called brotherhood and unity, Bratstvo Yedinstvo, in the Yugoslav case, um, uh, which was the the mantra uh, that all Yugoslavs were pledged uh, to uh, combat nationalism and chauvinism uh, and to preserve national unity uh, across uh, the uh, ethnic divide. And that um, was, therefore, one of the reasons why, for example, the Croatian uh, State Security Service, in addition to pursuing nationalist emigres outside the border of Yugoslavia, also uh, uh, pursued very intensely uh, for most of Yugoslavia's existence, uh, uh, Serb nationalists, Croat nationalists. So what then starts to happen, however, in the late 1980s, is that the Yugoslav State Security Service, or at least in the Croatian State Security Service's case, parts of it start to, uh, one might say, see the writing on the wall, and um, for opportunistic and other reasons, uh, a number of uh, members of the Croat State Security Service, even while they're keeping an eye on, and in theory trying to suppress Croat nationalism and Um, uh, within Croatia and among the emigres, also through their informants and through conversations with some of their former targets, start in essence to uh, build bridges to these people and um, uh, in the long run, even start collaborating with them in terms of uh, bringing some of the emigres back to uh, uh, late socialist Croatia uh, on the eve of Croatian independence. And one of the key figures here, uh, whom you mentioned, uh, is uh, Franjo Tuđman, uh, who was, uh, just very briefly, 
he'd been a, a, a high-ranking uh, partisan officer at the end of the war and, and into uh, early socialist Croatia, that is the end of the Second World War. Um, and he had been, at one point, uh, he made a career as a historian, and at one point was the leader of a major uh, historical institute in Zagreb. But because of his um, uh, historical revisionism, and in particular, the nationalist directions that his scholarship uh, and interest took, uh, Tujman had by the mid-1960s and into the 70s and 80s become a fully-fledged uh, Croat nationalist dissident. Um, and that meant that he was, and all of his co- family and all of his contacts were under constant surveillance by the Croatian Udba, uh, uh, certainly in the 1970s and the 1980s. He also spent stints in prison. And yet by the late 1980s, uh, key figures within the Yugoslav uh, and Croatian State Security Service, again, start to build these bridges to uh, Tujman to, to discuss his relationship with the emigres outside of Croatia who lionized him. And um, what happens is these strange be- bedfellows, in essence, uh, make a, a covenant um, that is to some extent implicit, some extent explicit, but the the, the takeaway is that when you uh, Tujman forms the HDZ, the Croat Democratic Union, and pushes Croatia towards independence in 1990 and 1991, he essentially co-opts part of the Croatian UDPA, who uh, provide their know-how um, to Tujman and basically help to establish what becomes the independent uh, Republic of Croatia in 1991. Uh, And what do they get for this? They get, in essence, an amnesty because Croatia, after independence, uh, does not push for, particularly because it's faced with an existential threat in in the form or in the shape of the war, with uh, Serbia or Yugoslavia between 1991 and 1995, these uh, old Croat UDPA guys put them, their arsenal uh, and their knowledge and their experience at the service of Croatian nationalism, at the service of Tujman's nationalist Croatian state project. And in, in return, they are amnestied and there are no steps taken uh, by Tujman or very few steps taken by Tujman and his allies to investigate and prosecute uh, these uh, Croat Udba veterans for anything that they might have done against Tujman and all of his nationalist allies during socialist Yugoslavia. Well, it's certainly, I mean, a necessary step for him and a clever step to co-opt them, right, in his government and also alongside that lionizing some of the immigrants who returned. Absolutely. And, and yet to this very day, I mean, uh, now nearly three decades after Croatia became independent, it's uh, a very, very uneasy uh, ceasefire, and there are a lot of uh, emigres, a lot of their descendants, a lot of the nationalist right in Croatia uh, that absolutely uh, detests uh, this truce. And it's one of the reasons why very, very little has been done in Croatia since independence to really pursue a reckoning with the UDPA. That having been said, one thing that we need to keep in mind, and I I emphasize um, uh, at the end of my book, and I think if we're going to try to be objective about this, it has to be mentioned, the 
Yugoslav State Security Service and the UDPA, despite its many faults and despite uh, certainly uh, many human rights violations and certainly the uh, very brutal assassinations that were carried out against Jurekovic and others, they were also, as some uh, Croat historians have also pointed out, again, doing the job of a Yugoslav uh, or of a, of a quote-unquote normal state security service uh, in the sense that they were protecting the Yugoslav state from uh, terrorist attacks. And one of the things that is a very, very sore point in, uh, in Croatia today, and certainly on the political right in Croatia, is that uh, people are reluctant to face the reality that hijackings, uh, murders, um, other kinds of violent operations were definitely uh, terrorist operations, and that uh, to a certain extent, from the point of international law, uh, one can say that the Yugoslav state was within its rights. How they did it and what means were used is another thing, but they were certainly within their rights to take certain steps uh, against terrorist threats. And again, I think I would agree with those of my colleagues in Croatia who also uh, would argue that if anything, the more extreme Croat terrorist activity aimed at the Yugoslav or aimed against the Yugoslav state probably also delayed instead of accelerating the actual goal that they were pursuing uh, these emigres, uh, that is the goal of reestablishing an independent uh, Croatian state. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there were some interesting twists and surprises. And naturally, this is a multi-layered story. Also, a number of things that I wasn't surprised by at all. And I think I'll leave it at that and have you take the last few minutes to discuss your current research project. So very briefly, I continue to do research into the Yugoslav uh, security services and also into the security services of Yugoslav successor states. And um, uh, just as this book was published by Bloomsbury, I.B. Tauris, I have uh, another book under contract with them. Uh, and I'm happy to be able to announce that uh, I'm finishing that book now, and that next book will be looking at the um, role of the police, uh, and in particular, the Bosnian Serb police in the uh, war in Bosnia-Herzegovina from 1992 to 1995. Excellent. Well, we look forward to um, reading more about that when it comes out and hopefully interviewing again. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you very much, Jill. It was a pleasure.